This week uh, has just been hard. It's been hard for uh, a number of reasons. Um, and as I prepared uh, this week, um, I found it difficult to concentrate. Um, and as I was going through the passage, it was uh, pretty easy to connect some things to uh, our, the current situation that we have with all the protests, uh, the racial injustice. It was easy for me to see connections to this passage. And I found myself making some connections that I think were completely appropriate. Um, but then I, I found myself going, oh, but there's so much more that needs to be said. Uh, so there's this wrestling of, man, what do I do? Um, so I decided uh, rather than, than saying some of these things and, and then taking over the passage, uh, I'm going to make a video that hopefully will be out Monday uh, just to spend some time talking about how do we respond to this? How do we engage in this as Christians? Uh, so some of you might be disappointed that I... Um, that, that, I, that I don't talk a ton about what's going on right now in this passage. Um, I will. Uh, I just, it was hard for me to talk a little and, and, and not uh, fully and, and really take over um, and go to places where this passage isn't going. So um, you might disagree with me. I'm sorry. Um, I will. I do have some things I want to say, though. Um, I'm going to pray. Lord, we, we love you, God. Um, my guess is that almost everyone watching this video uh, loves you, Jesus. And, and for anyone that, that's watching this video that, that does not know, do, doesn't know if, if you're real, doesn't know if, if you're worth following, doesn't know if you really died for them, Jesus, uh, I, I pray for them. I pray that you would open up all of our hearts to the the wonderful truths in your word today, in this passage, um, even though there's just this hard stuff. I mean, we've been sitting in hard stuff now for weeks and weeks and weeks. Um, Lord, we pray that, that you'd speak to our hearts through your word today, to our minds, that you would um, impact us in a way that we're actually we actually change, we, we grow, that you would make us more and more into the likeness of Christ um, I cannot do that. Lord, I, I need you to speak. I need you to, to connect your word to our hearts and minds. Um, so we, we pray for that. I pray for um, my friends that are listening right now. I pray that uh, you would free them from distractions. I pray that we would just be tuned in to what you have to say today, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So if you weren't with us last week, um, one of King David's sons, Absalom, led a rebellion uh, in order to become the king. So Absalom was trying to steal the hearts of the people away from King David. And Matt asked a great question that I think we, we really just need to continue to ask ourselves even long after we're out of the books of First and Second Samuel. Um, it was a question something like this. Who is trying to steal your heart away from the true king, Jesus? Who or what is luring you away from Christ, is tempting you? Um, is Jesus the one that you treasure above all else? The story of David and his family, the further we get into it, it leaves us with a longing for the king that we need. We need Jesus. And we're not to be fooled 
by imposters like Absalom, or we're going to meet another uh, leader of a rebellion today in our chapters. Uh, Absalom's rebellion didn't work out the way that Absalom had hoped, or his followers had hoped. Uh, but there was a great impact on David's kingdom that we'll see, continue to see today. David had to flee Jerusalem because of Absalom. And those loyal to David were fighting for him and for his kingdom. As their king was fleeing for his life and hiding, um, they were out there trying to save the king, trying to save the kingdom. But we have to remember, this is one of David's sons. He's already lost two sons. David had instructed Joab, the commander of his army, not to kill Absalom. And when, when we read that, when we hear that, the more we see of Joab, I think the more we wondered, is this possible? Will, will Joab really let Absalom live? And it, it didn't work out that way. Joab took his life. He had killed David's son. Well, the news reaches David and he's absolutely devastated. What we're told is that David wished that he could have died in Absalom's place. And this felt backwards uh, to many people in the story. It feels Maybe it feels backwards to you or upside down to you. Who would ever wish to die in the place of their enemy? But of course, this is exactly what Jesus has done for us. Romans 5.10 for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So David's grieving, and that grief is problematic. We pick up in chapter 19, and as a reader, uh, you might find yourself being sympathetic to both sides. Right? We can see that the people were trying to protect their king, King David. We also understand the tragedy that David lost another son. Another son has been killed. But we see that that son, Absalom, he was leading a rebellion against David, against the kingdom. David's life certainly was in danger. So for a moment, there was a feeling of victory for David's people. They, have, they had conquered the enemy that was trying to take out the king and, and the kingdom. But now it has turned to mourning because of David's grief. So the people hear how David is grieving and they head home. They're just ashamed. Well, Joab comes to the king. He rebukes the king. Um, if you were to read his rebuke, I actually think it's a little harsh. I think it's probably over the top, but there's certainly some truth in what he says. And then in the end, in short, he explains to David that his kingdom is on the edge of imploding. If he doesn't go out to the people, he could lose all of them overnight. Was Joab right? It's hard to say, but this is how David responded in 19 verse 8. Then the king arose and took his seat in the gate. And the people were all told, Behold, the king is sitting at the gate. And the people came before the king. And that's all we're told. We don't know if David actually said any words. This certainly wasn't a pep rally. It wasn't a spirited event. But it seemed to have worked with those who were loyal to David. It didn't take much. Right? They, they just needed to see their king. So David didn't lose the, the people that supported him through Absalom's rebellion, but this only represents a fraction of the nation of Israel. 
the outlook is still very bleak at this point. And the question is, will the nation come together under King David? In the second half of verse 8, we find out that the rest of the nation fled to their own homes, following the death of Absalom, whom they were following, whom they were trusting in. These were the people who ditched David for the up-and-coming political star. Right? They had bought into the hype of Absalom's promises, and now everything that he had promised is gone. And then uh, the people remembered King David, the one they had rebelled from and rejected. Verse 9 says, And all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, The king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines. And now he has fled out of the land from Absalom. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? My guess is that a lot of them felt really stupid in that moment. I wonder if any of them said to one of their friends, I knew we shouldn't have left David. He was so good to us. By the power of God, he delivered us from enemy after enemy. Why did we ever leave David? Well, word from the northern tribes, though probably not unanimous, or definitely not unanimous, the northern tribes of Israel, word reaches David. The, the conversation that they're having, the question, why, why wouldn't we talk about bringing the king back? I do think David has some politician in him. Right? I'm not saying he's slimy, but I, I think he's got some political savviness to him. So David uses this as an opportunity to also get back the people, uh, those from Judah, his own tribe, who, who had abandoned him. David sends this message to the elders of Judah. Why should you be the last to bring back the king to his house when the word of all Israel has come to the king? And, and then he says to them, Man, you're my bone and flesh, right? This, this is David's own tribe. His goal is to unite not just those who were already following him from Judah, but, but to unite the whole tribe of Judah together, along with, um, along with many people from the northern tribes of Israel. But the fear and the question that must remain for anyone who's re- rejected David, it has to be, Will there be retribution from the king? And then David does something pretty interesting. He says to uh, Amasa, who was the commander of Absalom's army, um, will, will you, or he doesn't say will you, he says you will be the commander in place of Joab. So David replaces his guy with Amasa, who was the commander of, of Absalom's army, right? The, the rebellion commander. There's a couple things I think he's, he's doing here. One, um, I think he's showing the rest of Judah, hey, we're good, right? There, there isn't going to be retribution. If I'm good with Amasa, who's from Judah, who headed up the rebellion against me, then we're all good. The second thing is, my guess is um, that David is punishing Joab for killing Absalom, for going against David's direct order to not kill him. Either way, we, we read the results of his word and, uh, and decisions in verse 14. It says, And he swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man, so that they sent word to the king, Return both you and all your servants. 
right? They're asking for the king to come back. Verse 15, so the king came back to the Jordan and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king uh, and to bring the king over the Jordan. Commentator John Woodhouse notes the, the, the similarity here to the gospel. He says that, that David's call to the nations is like the gospel in the sense that it was a call to return to the king and to welcome the return to the king. Have you returned to the king? Have you come to place your faith in King Jesus? Do you welcome the return of King Jesus? Do you long for Jesus to come back? Well, they came to meet the king in Gilgal, which is west of the Jordan. And there's been several significant events that have taken place here before. Gilgal is the first resting place for Israel when they entered the promised land. So it's fitting for a new beginning to take place here. It was also the place where Samuel called the people to renew the kingdom. And this certainly feels like a renewing moment for David's kingdom. Gilgal is also where Saul was rejected and the promise of the better king was made. So not only is it fitting to welcome that better king back, I think it also leaves us longing for the better King Jesus. David and his kingdom have left us wanting, especially in the last several chapters, longing for the return of our true King Jesus. And this week, I've wanted more uh, than I have in a long time for Jesus to return. Right? You feel the brokenness, I'm sure, of everything in our world right now, from racial inequality to the pandemic, political problems. Um, man, I long for Jesus to return. So these people come to meet the king. And the first pe- person that we're told about uh, is kind of shocking. It's uh, Shimei. Uh, he's a Benjamite, same tribe as Saul. He's the one that back in chapter 16 uh, was chucking rocks at David and his servants. He's yelling and cursing at him, calling him a man of blood. And now here he is uh, to meet the king with, with this giant entourage. A thousand men are with him. And he falls before the king. In verse 19, it says, He said to the king, Let not my Lord hold me guilty or remember how your servant did wrong on the, Lord, on the day my Lord the king left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart, for your, servants, uh, for your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph, to come to meet my Lord the king. It's really hard, at least for me, to not be skeptical, Shimei, here. It, it isn't until the momentum is clearly back with David that, that Shimei's repentant. Um, Being the first to greet David certainly doesn't prove to anything. But I do wonder if the author's choice of words is supposed to remind us of David's repentance. He says the exact same thing that David said back in chapter 12. I have sinned. And David, we know, he didn't have a repentant heart for a long time. Probably a year. Right? There was nothing that brought him to repentance. It wasn't until he was confronted by Nathan, abruptly confronted, that David repented. And what David found was grace. Nathan told David that the Lord has put away your sin. 
So the question remains, what would David do with Shimei? Well, Abishai, who was with David, he was ready. He was just waiting for the king's order to put Shimei to death. Just say the word, David, and I'll do it. But David responded like the Lord. He said, you shall not die. And this is a glimpse of what Christ is like. The king, who instead of destroying rebels, he forgives those who come to him in repentance. One pastor wrote, those who beg for mercy from the returning Lord Jesus will find kindness greater than Shimei could know. So David's forgiveness in some ways is a surprise to us. We've seen a ton of character flaws in David, but this looks like growth and maturing. David certainly has been humbled. I don't think it's a coincidence that David said the exact same thing that God said to him. David was humbled by his sin. He was humbled by the grace given to him. Have you been humbled by your sin? Or are you self-righteous? If you're in Christ, you should know grace better than most of the world. And it seems, therefore, that Christians should be the most ready to dispense grace, to respond to people with grace, to listen with grace, and speak with grace to post words that are saturated with grace. Right now, um, well, for years, we've seen a lot of political posts that are angry. Right? We see um, posts about racial issues that are angry. Uh, there were, or still are, pandemic posts that are angry. And we know from Scripture right, that we can be angry and not sin. There is a righteous anger. And there are so many things that we that, that deserve righteous anger. But we're told in that anger, do not sin. If you can't do that, don't post. Don't speak. Instead, pray. Ask God to remind you of the grace that He has lavished you with. I think a really excellent psalm right now for everyone is Psalm 139, uh, specifically verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. How much better would we do if we would ask God to search our hearts before we respond, before we react, before we post, before we speak? So anyway, what I think we see from David in this response here is a man who has been humbled, certainly humbled by all the turmoil that has followed his sin uh, in chapter 11. And now he gives grace to a man that treated David as an enemy. Well, next comes uh, Mephibosheth, uh, Jonathan's crippled son, who David, you might remember, restored King Saul's property, his land, to Mephibosheth. He made a uh, a place at at David's own table for Mephibosheth to dine each week. Um, uh, But before we're told um, what Mephibosheth said and what he did, we're described, um, we're told what he looked like. Since the king departed, it said he, had, he hadn't taken care of his feet, he hadn't trimmed his beard, he hadn't washed his clothes. It kind of sounds a little like COVID life, right? Uh, many of us haven't gotten a haircut. Uh, I don't shave unless it's Thursday and I'm about to do uh, the video for the sermon. Uh, Mephibosheth was 
was kind of in shambles. And, and he says, and the author says, that it's because, or it's since the king departed, Mephibosheth hadn't done that. Well, David had been told back in chapter 16 um, from Mephibosheth's servant Ziba that, um, that Mephibosheth had rejected the king, that basically that he was hoping that Absalom would end up, uh, end up in charge and, and that David would, would be brought down. But Mephibosheth is saying that's a lie. Commentators are split on this. I mean, it's, it's almost 50-50. Uh, to me, it seems so clear that Mephibosheth, uh, he's telling the truth. But I, I don't know. Um, and I'm not sure that David knew exactly either. Because what David does is he decides to split, split the land between Mephibosheth and Ziba. Right? So he reverses his decision to give all of King Saul's land back to or to Mephibosheth and he splits it between the two of them. But what's more remarkable, whether Mephibosheth was telling the truth or not, um, Mephibosheth in this moment doesn't seem to care. All he cares about is that the king has returned. The next guy uh, that comes to David uh, is similar in that sense. Uh, Barzillai, um, he's the last one to come to David. We're told that he is 80 years old. And what happened was he took care of David and his people when he fled Absalom. Uh, Barzillai was a, a wealthy farmer, and out of his great abundance, he provided for David and his people. Now that David is returning as their king, he comes to support, to celebrate the return of his king. And David had not forgotten the generosity of this man, and he was so eager to repay him. So he invited Barzillai to come back with him to Jerusalem, and now David would be the one providing for him, supplying his needs. And this provision wouldn't just be the provision of a wealthy farmer, and I'm sure that was great, but this would be the provision of the king. I'm sure the food and the lodging would have been absolutely incredible, but Barzillai turns him down. He's old. He says, can your servant discern what is pleasant and what is not? He says, can your servant taste what he eats or what he drinks? That sounds terrible to me. Right? To, to my 80-year-old brothers and sisters in Christ, I want you to tell me that that is not true. I want to taste my food when I'm 80. So he he turns David down. He says, hey, instead, take, take this person with you. It's probably his own son. Barzillai didn't care about being repaid. He was content with the king. He was content with his king and that his king had returned. So chapter, uh, then chapter 19 ends with an argument, right? Things are not settled. The tribes of the north and the, and the tribes of, of Judah, or the tribe of Judah, they get in this argument. The, the northern tribes are saying, we have no share in David's kingdom. And Judah, though, seems to win the argument. From the view of the narrator, he's won the argument. But what we see is that the, the kingdom is still fragile at best. There's been so much damage that's been done. I remember when I was a kid, I mean, I was really little, and my dad and I were at some body of water, and he showed me what happens when you throw even just a tiny little pebble into water. And, and it makes that little splash, and, and, and there are these concentric 
rings that go out. And I was shocked at how far these rings would go, right? From, from just this little tiny rock, this, this little tiny splash, these rings would go on and on and on. And we sat there for, I don't know, maybe more than an hour throwing rocks. And, and of course, like any boy, like I wasn't content in throwing little rocks. I threw bigger and bigger rocks and saw bigger and bigger ripples. But we see how far reaching the ripples have traveled from David's sin. What was once a promising kingdom, right, filled with goodness, with generosity, with equity and justice, now looks nothing like the kingdom from the early chapters of this book. It is fragile. So David, his return is good, but the kingdom it's hanging by a thread, right? It feels like it's being held together by, by duct tape. Chapter 20 begins with a leader of a new rebellion against David. And he's building off the argument that the northern tribes were making. He's saying that, that they have no portion in David's kingdom, that there's no inheritance in David. And inheritance, when we think of Israel, this makes us think of the promised land that they were to get. It makes us think of uh, that, that Israel, that they were to be God's own people, his own possession. And he's saying, no, we have nothing in David. And he ends with saying, every man to his tent. Effectively, he is calling Israel to leave David. And this is the call of the world in so many ways. Leave your king, Jesus. He won't really give you what he's promised. He won't really come through. He can't, or he won't, or, or he doesn't care, or he isn't good enough. Right? It's like the snake in the garden, putting doubts in the minds of Adam and Eve. And this is what we're faced with every single day as Christ followers. Will we follow the king? Will you trust Jesus even when everything seems to be going wrong? Or, or what, about, what about, will you follow Jesus when you hate the things you see other, other Christians doing? Will you continue to follow him? Or, or, or will you follow Jesus when, you know, fill in the blank, whatever it is, the world is continually calling us away from Jesus. Well, many people buy into Sheba's argument. They follow him. And I get why Sheba was able to convince Israel to follow him. David wasn't stable. His kingdom wasn't stable. God is stable, though. David knows this about God. David writes about God in the Psalms. He says things like, God is a rock. God is a fortress. He is unshakable. God is our stronghold, our refuge. He is our shield. He's our deliverer, our savior. This week, I've been as grateful for those descriptions of God as ever. As, as our world feels so unstable, as things in the news change day to day, right? Remember how it seemed like each day there was something different about the pandemic that seemed to contradict a day or a week before. I'm so thankful that our God is stable. Well, a decent amount of Judah remains faithful to David, but again, this is just a fraction of the nation. So David needs stability. He talks to his new commander, Amasa, 
in uh, 24 uh, through 5, he says, uh, it says, Then the king said to Amasa, Call the men of Judah together to me within three days and be here yourself. So Amasa went to summon Judah, but he delayed beyond the set time that had been appointed to him. So Amasa takes too long. And David takes this rebellion very seriously. He saw what happened with Absalom. Um, so David enlists Abishai, the brother of Joab, right? He doesn't call Joab, but he calls his brother. And I'm sure this is because he's still furious with him killing Absalom. So he sends Abishai to take care of the rebellion. Now we find out that Joab and his men were actually with Abishai in this. I don't think David knew that. Um, on the way, Abishai and Joab bump into Amasa. The way it's written in the Hebrew, it seems uh, like this meeting was not by chance. Joab pretends to greet Amasa favorably, but it's only so he can take him out. Joab has no problem with cunning, deceit, and force. Joab will take whatever action he feels necessary to secure David's kingdom. He always does what he thinks is right. Early in the book, at the foundation of David's kingdom was trust in the Lord. But what we see in Joab is, is doing what is right in his estimation time after time. Well, with Amasa out of the way, Joab leads the charge to take out Sheba. His brother is no longer calling the shots. Sheba makes it to a city um, and he hides out there. Joab and his men besiege the city. They cut off all supplies. They've blocked the city in. They're, they're trying to batter the wall down. And we're told that this wise woman uh, negotiates with Joab and, and, and uh, basically uh, convinces Joab, hey, let us take care of Sheba. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll kill him for you. So they do that. Joab agrees. They won't destroy the city. They won't kill anyone else if they take out uh, Sheba. The, the problem is taken care of. And then chapter, uh, chapter 20 ends with, uh, with, with just three verses. And, and it might seem like a strange ending, but it's, it's meant to take us back to chapter 8, when, when the kingdom was at its pinnacle. So I want to read uh, 2 Samuel 8, 15 through 18, uh, because uh, it, it virtually mirrors um, uh, what is said in, in 20, or, or 20 virtually mirrors 8. So it says this, So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. Joab, the son of Zeruah, was over the army, and Jehoshaphat, uh, the son of Ahilud, was recorder. And Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were priests. And Sarai was a secretary. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, uh, was over the Cherethites, uh, and the Pelethites and David's sons were priests. Okay, now this is what it says in 20, verses 23 through 25, and I'll point out some major differences. Verse 23, Joab was in command of all the army of Israel, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada was in command of the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and Adoram was in charge of the forced labor, and Jehoshaphat, son of Ahiliad, uh, was recorder. Shiva was secretary. Zadok and Abiathar the priests, and Ir the uh, Jairite uh, was also David's priest. Three major differences I want to point out. There's some other ones too that, that I won't point out. So in chapter 8, the kingdom's described as saying that David administered justice and equity to all his people. But by chapter 20, 
David's kingdom cannot be described that way. The second is Joab in 8 was described as being over the army, which back then that felt right. But now in 20, it says that he's over all of Israel. We've gotten to know Joab better and better. And, And you know his strength is not found in the Lord. It is in himself. He represents the very compromise of David's kingdom. Lastly, in chapter 20, there's a a new person named Adoram. And we're told that he's over the forced labor, right? This is some form of slavery. And it includes their own people. It includes Israelites. In, In 1 Kings, we see that this will be a part of what divides the kingdom. So this quick description in 20, if we're paying attention, we realize uh, how far the kingdom has fallen since chapter 8. David's sin has eroded the goodness of his kingdom. His kingdom has really become like all the other nations, something that they were never supposed to do. And you might feel like me, that as we've gone through for several weeks now, these chapters, it ends and it's, it's depressing. Um, Jen Wilkin said this, speaking about First and Second Samuel, she said, This is not a book that gives you a happy ending. We want a happy ending. We want the Bible to tell us what we want to hear. And it will do so, but it will make us pass through every stage of grief that we need to get us there. And I think she's spot on. This is good for us. The question is, what do we do with these two chapters? What do we take away? Uh, here's three things. Um, the first is that for many chapters now, I think what we've seen is the destruction of sin. right? The, and the consequences of sin, even though forgiveness has come, there are still consequences that have to be dealt with. Um, I've said this before that that the fantasy of any sin it, it only takes you to the pinnacle of that desire the fantasy never imagines the consequences and the fallout the temptation stops at the tempting part it keeps you from imagining though the brokenness that will result sin is destructive it does not compare to the blessings of following jesus Second thing is, just like last week with Absalom's rebellion, now this week with Sheba's rebellion, um, do you see that there is always an enemy that is trying to lure your heart away from the king? So what or who right now is trying to take you from the king? What gets you to doubt the promise of Jesus? If you've rejected the king, it isn't too late for you to return. But you can't follow both. right? You can't follow Jesus and. You can only follow one or the other. Will you return to the king? And lastly, the picture of the returning king to Israel, it ought to make us think about Jesus and his promise to return. I love John 14, 3. Jesus says, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. 
Jesus promised that he will come again, that he will gather his people to himself so that we can be with him and that will be for eternity. Man, do you long for that? I've probably longed for that this week more than any week in a really long time. Uh, it's just been a hard week. Right? It's, it's been hard um, watching the news. It's been hard um, seeing people that I know post uh, about racial things and, and their pain. It's been hard reading people that I've never met and probably will never meet and, and feeling their pain. Um, it's been hard personally. I've, I've sat with multiple people or, or, or been on the phone with multiple people this week that have just received devastating news. I mean, I mean news that, that um, it could change families yeah, like for, for the rest of the time on earth here. Um, I, had a, I had a friend and partner in ministry take his life this week. Like I've just, man, I just feel the brokenness. Right? I, just, I, I just find myself saying, Jesus, like, we just need you. Right? This, this world is broken and you are the only one who can fix it. And, and, and I'm not saying like we can't impact change. I'm not saying that. But, but don't fool yourselves into thinking that, that we're the ones that are going to change things. Man, it is only through Christ. It's only in Christ. And, and ultimately, right, Christ will come back. He will make all things new. But we will not realize like perfect justice. We will not realize really what we want is grace that, that God that God gives through Christ until He returns. So so we long for His kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And I hope that we are praying for that, that we are trusting God for that, and, and that that as we wait, it, it is with eager expectation, and that we were a part. Of, of people hearing the news about this king, hearing that they can know the king who will make all things right, the king that, that died on the cross for them, and the, the nastiness that we find ourselves in, in sin. So, so we pray for his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. We pray with me now. Jesus, are we... We need you, God. I'm so grateful that you are a rock, that you are a fortress, that you are a place of refuge. Lord, I pray for our world. I mean, it's crazy that pandemic news this week is almost on the back burner. It's like an afterthought in some ways. God, we, we desperately need you. And Jesus, I pray for your people all over the globe that we would be ready to speak about you, about the hope that we have in you, that, that we wouldn't be uh, lured by anything, uh, to follow anything but you, Jesus, that we would trust in you, even if we feel like, like other Christians are really blowing it. Lord, I pray that we would, would be dedicated to you and following you. God, I pray that we would love the bride of Christ as well, Jesus. Lord, I could go on and on and on. We just need you. And we, we pray, Lord, that you keep our hearts focused on, on you, King Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.